This is The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It is a virus that began in China but is sending medical shockwaves around the world. In just a moment, we will get the very latest from a Washington Post medical reporter and some background from a leading biology expert from the campus of Wake Forest University in North Carolina. But first, to give you a sense of the global impact this illness is having, this posting from the London Guardian. It's from a family called the coronaviruses. The symptoms of this illness are pretty mundane on the face of it. It's a dry cough, fever, and then breathing problems. It seems quite mild in lots of people, and probably those people don't end up in hospital at all. We only know about the more severe cases, which is where people have gone on to develop viral pneumonia. And those people obviously end up in hospital, and all the deaths have been amongst those people. And in this country, coverage from ABC News. A medical emergency here where the numbers are rising. All schools now shut until mid-February. And the death toll in China jumping overnight to more than 80, with those infected now heading towards 3,000. In the U.S., two more cases confirmed. Another one in California, the other in Arizona, bringing the total to five, with the CDC now warning us to expect that that number will rise. But it's in China that it's by far the worst. The country now rushing to build two new hospitals in a matter of days. The mayor of Wuhan, where the outbreak started, offering to resign and admitting there was a delay in releasing information, saying he was waiting for approval from Beijing. The coronavirus is also affecting financial markets as well as international travel. Here is how NBC is covering that part of the story. In Los Angeles, officials confirmed a case after a passenger self-reported his symptoms at LAX. The airport screenings are working effectively, but remember, they're not perfect. Across the country, more than 100 patients in 26 states are being monitored for possible coronavirus, including a student at Wesleyan. California health officials emphasizing there is no immediate danger to the public. People should not be excluded from any activities based on their race, their country of origin. And in Great Britain, BBC's coverage of the virus and its impact on the airlines. Just a short while ago, British Airways said it was suspending all flights to and from mainland China. That comes after the British government advised against all but essential travel to China. And Indonesia's Lion Air has also just said it's suspending its flights. Other airlines, including United Airlines, Air Canada and Cathay Pacific Airways, have cancelled some flights to China, although in some cases it is because of a lack of demand. Just some of the stories over the last couple of days. And joining us on the phone from the Washington Post newsroom is Lenny Bernstein. He covers health and medicine. And I want to begin with some news that's been developing over the last 24 hours. First, an unprecedented quarantine of more than 50 million people across China. How big of a deal is this? It's a very big deal. Um, the question is whether that quarantine is going to help at all. But to restrict the movements of 50 million people across a region uh, of central China is is probably unprecedented in public health history. Um, it's difficult for the authorities to enforce. They've now added to their burden by having to bring in supplies. They have to make sure that food and water gets to those people, masks and medicine if they can. Um, but it is no small thing uh, in public health. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very extreme measure. 
It has been about three weeks since the first uh, coronavirus emerged. Now it's being called a health crisis. What have you learned over the last couple of weeks, and what has surprised you the most? Boy, there's lots of surprises. Um, Assuming that the numbers that we're getting out of China are correct, and that's a very big assumption, uh, I've been surprised by the low number, the small number of fatalities as compared to the number of people who are sick. Um, As we're talking today, uh, it's 213 people dead and uh, about 97 or 9,800 infected. Almost all of them are in China, uh, maybe 100 or so outside. Um, That's nothing to uh, laugh at. Uh, That's still a, you know, a 2% fatality rate, which is, which is high. But um, given the measures that the Chinese are taken, take, have taken, uh, I would expect those fatality numbers to, um, to be higher. Um, I also uh, am puzzled and confused by um, the lack of certainty on how infectious this is. Uh, it seems to be fairly infectious if you are symptomatic. You do have to take precautions if you're around a symptomatic person. Uh, each person seems to be infecting somewhere around two to three people. But the confusion over whether people who are not showing symptoms um, can transmit the virus to other people is giving everybody pause. And that's one of the things that uh, really need to be nailed down when the WHO and the CDC go into China. And of course, not to reduce the seriousness of the coronavirus, as you point out, so far in this flu season, at least 8,200 people have died in the U.S. Yes, actually, they updated their numbers today, and their model now talks about 10,000 to 25,000 people uh, estimated have died from just from the seasonal influenza here in the United States. Uh, that's a very large number, um, and that's a number that we essentially shrug off every winter. This is a, a typical maybe slight, somewhat serious flu season this year, but it's nothing like the one we had in 2017 when uh, a lot more people died. So yes, um, nothing to um, be casual about. 200 deaths is is a tragedy, but um, around the United States, many, many more people are dying from the seasonal influenza. We're talking with Lenny Bernstein. He covers health and medicine for The Washington Post. So far, more than a dozen countries now confirming cases of the coronavirus. How about the U.S.? What are we doing to try to prevent its spread across this country? Well, we have six cases here. Um, All those people have been isolated. In one instance, uh, a woman who came back from Wuhan gave it to her husband. The two of them are isolated uh, in a hospital in suburban Chicago. The idea here is to keep people we know have the virus away from others. Then we go and we trace their contacts back over a certain number of days to make sure that those people are not symptomatic. They they instruct them to watch out for symptoms themselves. But now um, we are taking the rather unusual step of confining those 195 evacuees from uh, Wuhan to a military base in Southern California uh, against their will. We don't use this quarantine power very often, probably not in decades. I haven't had a chance to check on it yet because 
the CDC just announced it. But uh, those 195 people, because they're worried about the transmissibility of the virus, don't feel that they have a clear handle on it. The CDC is now uh, going to keep those people on that base for 14 days. Uh, This makes one wonder about future evacuations from Wuhan. Will they do the same thing with everyone they bring back in? Uh, Will they stop the evacuations? Um, It's sort of an interesting development in this whole story. And as you point out in your piece, which is available at WashingtonPost.com, a lot of unknowns, including just how lethal the virus is and how contagious it is, correct? Correct. And that's the hard thing. It's really difficult to plan when you don't have these informa- this information. When did these people get sick? How long have they been sick for? How long has this virus been burning through Wuhan? How, what is the fatality rate? How infectious is it? Um, what precautions work? Does it, uh, does it live on surfaces after the droplets um, from people's exhalations fall out of the air? All of these are things we don't know yet, and that, I think, is one of the reasons people are so anxious about all this. When, when we don't know something, when we don't have the information, we tend to interpret it as a threat, and uh, we tend to get very anxious about it. With that update, Lenny Bernstein of The Washington Post, we thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. You're listening to The Weekly on C-SPAN Radio and the free C-SPAN Radio app. And joining us on the phone from Wake Forest University is Pat Lord. She is a teaching professor in the Department of Biology. And I want to pick up where we left off with Lenny Bernstein of The Washington Post. More questions than answers on the coronavirus. Why? Um, because it's a new, novel coronavirus that hasn't infected humans before and therefore hasn't spread from humans to humans. So there are just a lot of unknowns. Um, I think one of the things about this coronavirus as compared to SARS is, which was the sort of last previous coronavirus that came from China uh, or that originated in China, is that Um, This time, the Chinese government seems to be cooperating very well, and Chinese officials are cooperating. And so from the time that sort of the first patient was identified till the viral genome was sequenced or determined that the order of the nucleotides was basically barely a month. That's amazing that we already have this sequence data and can start to look about where this virus originated. How did we get to this point? Do you know? Hmm. <laughs> you mean like these new novel viruses and why we're seeing this spread? Is and that its what, origins what in China, talking? exactly. Yeah. Yes. So um, I think one of the things that a lot of us in virology or that work in the environment or and work with animal health is this whole concept of one health that without our environment being healthy, without animals therefore being healthy, it's definitely going to affect human health. And I think what a lot of us are thinking about, and and definitely what you're seeing with this new novel coronavirus, is that when people are living in such dense areas, and then there's such a density of animals, either in animal markets or because humans are um, exploring environments that previously, you know, animals were limited to, we're we're encroaching on their territory. Um, The ability for these viruses that have been only in animals previously um, to jump or to mutate into a human host is going to happen more frequently. 
I am going to ask you what admittedly is a very basic question, but if you could explain mm-hmm. exactly yeah, what, sure. is, what is a virus? What is it? Oh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So a virus is not a cell. Um, a big discussion is, is it really a living organism? Because a virus cannot replicate itself, cannot make more copies of itself on its own. It must be inside of a host cell. So for like the original um, coronavirus, it would have probably been infecting some animal and then using the animal's machinery or the animal cells machinery to make more copies of itself and then spread either to other cells in that animal or to other animals, right? Um, And so it's just very simple. It has a genome, so a nucleic acid. And what's unique about viruses is that they can either have a DNA genome or an RNA genome, whereas our cells and the cells of bacteria only have DNA as a genome. Um, So they have a, a genome, either RNA or DNA. They have a protein coat, a capsid that protects that genome. And then sometimes they have what's called an envelope or a lipid layer around the outside that may also have some viral proteins in it. Um, What's interesting about any RNA virus, like influenza, like Zika, like coronavirus or Ebola, is the enzyme, the RNA polymerase, that makes copies of the RNA genome makes mistakes. So it, it might put in the wrong nucleotide. Thankfully for our cells and bacteria cells, our DNA polymerases have proofreading mechanisms. So if they put in the incorrect base, they can back up and go, oh, that's a mistake, kind of like white out. White out the incorrect base and put a correct one in. But with RNA viruses, they don't have that capability. So what we see with RNA viruses is many more of these outbreaks, these zoonotic outbreaks, where originally an animal virus accumulates enough mutations to be able to spread and infect human cells, which is what we mean by jumping into human cells, and then to accumulate enough mutations to be able to spread efficiently from humans to humans. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Dr. Pat Lord. She is a teaching professor in the Department of Biology at Wake Forest University. I want to ask you about the different strains of the flu because we've been hearing that if you had the flu mm-hmm. shot, that doesn't mean that that doesn't help you with the coronavirus. So explain why that's the case. Why different strains in different uh, vaccinations would be treated differently? Yeah. So huh, the flu virus and coronavirus have an RNA genome, but it's kind of a very different RNA genome. And that RNA genome makes very different proteins that are part of like a flu virus. So a flu virus will have flu-specific proteins and a coronavirus will have coronavirus-specific proteins. So if you've gotten vaccinated for flu, your body uh, uses its immune system to sort of recognize, oh, flu doesn't belong here, it's foreign, I'm going to generate an immune response. But that immune response is very, very specific and will only recognize the flu-specific proteins. So if you were to get infected with a coronavirus, it, it's like, well, that's the first time I've seen that. That's something different. I don't recognize it. You will mount an immune response. So the second time you see that coronavirus, you would your immune system would remember it, but there's not cross-reactivity because 
from flu to corona, those are very different protein structures in the surface of the virus. And Dr. Lord, why is it called coronavirus? Where does that term come from? Because they're beautiful. Have you seen them? (laughs) They look like, um, because on their surface, um, the protein spikes that are sticking out of the lipid bilayer, out of the envelope, make kind of an appearance like it looks like a crown. And so that's how they got their name. Corona means crown. And what about the U.S. response, uh, what we're hearing from the CDC, NIH, and others in trying to alert Americans, saying don't panic, but be concerned? Sure. So um, while we have now seen a case in the U.S. where it spread from uh, a woman who came back from Wuhan, um, she got sick, and now her husband is sick, um, it has not, I mean, that's a very, that takes a very close contact. These are people that are married, live in the same house, maybe in the same room, right? So it's spread by aerosols, um, but again, it requires very close contact. Um, so I, I think the CDC and, and NIH, other health agencies are responding very correctly. Um, healthcare providers should only be suspicious of a coronavirus infection or this new novel coronavirus infection if somebody has either traveled recently to the Wuhan province or has been in close contact with somebody that has the uh, novel coronavirus infection. Um, I I was looking today just recently and um, looking at reports from the CDC about these two people in Illinois, and both of them, the woman is that who was the first infected, she's already getting better. She's in very stable condition. The husband, as soon as he started having symptoms, um, he reported it to the health officials and he's been hospitalized. He's in isolation, um, as is the wife, I believe, still. So they're, you know, we're, we're doing what we need to be doing to minimize the spread. This is not like everybody in their neighborhood in Chicago has not come down with this coronavirus. Moving ahead, what questions do you have? And I guess more significantly, what concerns? Yeah, um, I I think questions so far are, are, you know, right now, the number of cases um, have... uh, is above what the number of cases were for the whole SARS outbreak. So you wonder, you know, is there some other um, opportunity for people to be exposed? You know, they thought the original exposures were through the seafood market, the live animal market, but now clearly um, not everyone has had direct contact either with somebody that was at that market or um, was at the market themselves. So are we missing some piece of how the epidemiology, how this virus is spreading from humans to humans? Since the number of cases is going up so rapidly, especially with, especially in China, with so many quarantine mechanisms in place. Um, I, I think right now, like, I, I'm not really fearful of it um, because it does have a very low uh, percentage of people dying from this infection. Um, if you think about it, in this country, so far since October, we're estimating 10 to 25,000 deaths from the flu. I mean, we have no deaths from this virus yet in the United States. Um, so I think 
one, are we missing some piece of how it's spreading? Um, thinking down the road, what could we do effectively to sort of break that connection so that maybe in the future more people won't get infected from animal viruses that mutate? Um, I know I read one report of like maybe all live animal markets need to be closed in China, right, to decrease the risk. I think a concern about that is this is part of Chinese culture. It's it's how they find their uh, buy their food, purchase their food. It's a social place, right, to meet at the market. So if we do something like that where you just say, okay, no more live animal markets, is that going to drive live animal markets more underground so that we don't have effective mechanisms for being able to track, you know, sources of outbreaks. And finally, from um, your perspective, at what point would this become a public health emergency or crisis here in the U.S.? Um, I think many more people have to become infected. Um, and uh, they're, they're yeah, many more people have to become infected such that it seems like we can't contain it, right? I mean, so right now in China, clearly it's not being contained because the number of cases just climb exponentially. Um, we haven't seen that yet in the United States. So far, we only have one case of a human-to-human transmission in the United States. Um, I, I, it feels to me like everybody's monitoring everything and following all the protocols they need to be following. So I think it would be only if then we sort of see a, a huge increase in human-to-human transmissions in the United States. Dr. Pat Lord, a teaching professor in the Department of Biology on the campus of Wake Forest University, we thank you for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. A reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.